welcome to Future Out Loud from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with Andrew Maynard, we bring you conversations with experts on and off campus where we think out loud about our collective future. In today's episode, Andrew and I were joined by our boss, actually, David Gustin, who is the founding director of the School for the Future of Innovation and Society at ASU. Dave is also the co-director of the Consortium for Science Policy and Outcomes, or CSPO, which is a science and technology think tank that we're very delighted was just named the top university based science and technology think tank in the United States and number nine in the world. So we're delighted about that. And we were so excited to have Dave join us to talk about Frankenstein. Now, for me, Frankenstein brings up images of Gene Wilder and Mel Brooks, and we do talk about them, have no fear. But we really talk about Frankenstein in so much as the 200th anniversary of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is upon us. And Dave has been, as he will talk about in the episode, for the past several years focused on really interrogating Mary Shelley's work as um, to understand what it has to offer us today in terms of thinking about science and new technologies. One thing for sure that I want to mention that we talk about in the episode is the Emerge Festival um, that is being held on February 25th, that is Saturday, February 25th, 2017, here at ASU at the University Club in Tempe. Um, If you are in the Southwest, and we're putting this episode up on Monday, February 20th, happy President's Day to those of you who celebrate such a thing, and uh, so it's this Saturday. Um, It's going to be from 3 to 9 p.m. Emerge is a festival of futures. It is a transmedia event that merges art, science, and technology, and our theme for 2017 is Frankenstein. Um, So we would be delighted to have people of all ages engage in the festivities surrounding Emerge and Frankenstein. For more information on that, please go to the Emerge website, at emerge.asu.edu. That is E-M-E-R-G-E dot A-S-U dot E-D-U. And as always, we are so happy that you're here with us listening to the Future Out Loud podcast. We would love to know what you think. You can message us on Facebook at Future Out Loud. You can tweet at us at Future Out Loud on Twitter, of course. Um, You can subscribe to the Future Out Loud podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your fine free podcasts. And you can also tell your friends about Future Out Loud. If you like what we're we're doing, um, we would love for you to tell other people so that they also can like what we're doing. If you uh, feel so moved as to leave us a review and a rating in the places where you download podcasts, then we would be very happy to have those too. So on with the episode, and as always, thank you for listening. Hi, Dave. Hey, Heather. Hi, Andrew. Hello. Hey, Andrew. Oh, I'm so glad to be here all together. And we're going to talk about 
Frankenstein, of all things. Um, Dave, how is it that Frankenstein has come into your life in such a pervasive way? Well, you know, a while ago, and I actually have lost contact with exactly what that moment was, but it was sometime around 2012, and at that point I had been directing this thing called the Center for Nanotechnology and Society for seven years, and I was imagining that at some point that was going to end. And that would end at, you know, 2015, 2016, sometime around there. And it dawned on me that 2018 would be the bicentennial of the publication of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And that it deserved some significant amount of attention, both scholarly and publicly. And that if I was, you know, thinking about what the next big hairy project that I would like to work on would uh -huh. be after the Center for Nano and Society, Frankenstein would be it. Okay. So, you know, going back to like 2012, I started plotting this stuff as the genesis of the Frankenstein project. Is yeah. it possible that you had maybe, well, 2012, were we streaming yet? Or is it possible that Mel Brooks had something to do with this? Well, Mel Brooks has to has a lot to do with just about everything as far as I can <laughs> um, And it was not an episode, it was not watching... Uh, young Frankenstein at the time, although I'm happy to delve into all sorts of wonderful things uh, <laughs> about the relationship between what young Frankenstein does and what the larger issues of, of Frankenstein are. And in fact, um, one of the first activities that we managed to put together, and by we I mean me and my major partner in crime uh, on this, Ed Finn, mm -hmm. who directs the Center for Science and the Imagination here at ASU, um, was a um, a uh, film series in conjunction with the Seattle International Film Festival. And it was uh, ASU's Peter Lehman, who directs the Center for Film, Media, and Society, who helped broker that. And so I was up in Seattle, um, I think this was uh, two years ago, just okay. about now. Um, and we showed a set of films, the original uh, Universal Studios 1931, mm -hmm. uh, uh, whale-directed Frankenstein, uh, we showed um, uh, Young Frankenstein. We showed the 10-minute piece of Silent Frankenstein that mm -hmm. was uh, produced by Thomas Edison Studios. Mm -hmm. And in the, the, the clip that I was really interested in from Young Frankenstein was one where uh, Gene Wilder um, is about to go into the cell in which the creature mm -hmm. is held, and he convinces the assembled folks there, um, Frau Blucher, <laughs> thank <Yep>. you, um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, Marty Feldman's Igor, and uh, Igor. Igor, and uh, Terry Garth, whatever her name was. Oh, what was um, her name? The internet can tell us. Yeah. Keep going. <laughs> that, um, you know, under no circumstances should they let him out. It was crucial to the progress of the experiment that he should remain in that cell regardless of what he says. Mm -hmm. So he goes into the cell and he immediately, seeing the large hulking creature, starts pounding on the door of the cell. Let me out, let me mm -hmm. out. And they refuse to let him out. And he turns around and the monster is roused and he looks at the monster and he has this idea. And the idea comes out of his mouth as, Hello, handsome! <laughs> and of course that is exactly the thing that doesn't happen mm -hmm. right. in Mary Shelley's story Right. we don't have the confrontation of the creature and the creator where the creator actually welcomes 
Mm. The creature. Right, right. Inga, by the way. Inga, thank you. Yes, you're welcome. Right. Right. <laughs> Why, thank you, Doctor. Um, so, so, right, so Mary Shelley never creates a space where the creature is welcomed. Well, Victor Frankenstein never performs a space. Or Frankenstein. Um, where the creature is welcomed in the original novel. That, um, immediately after the creation, you get this very strange and even pathetic behavior mm -hmm. on Victor's part where he runs away, he faints away, he's absent, and and so on, and you never really get um, their being put together until uh, much longer mm -hmm. uh, after the creature has um, become the monster that Victor imagined he might be when uh, when Victor faints away, and after the creature has this history of, of growing up, if you will, parentless. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. So, 200 years later, you're revisiting it, mm -hmm. um, and Obviously, from your perspective, there are huge parallels with what Mary Shelley was beginning to explore and what we're seeing now in multiple ways in, mm -hmm. in society. Uh, so how, how is that working out and how are you using this vehicle as uh, the 200-year anniversary to try and explore some of these issues? So a couple of things. I mean, the, the particular issues that exist in the world right now are really wide-ranging um, that that Frankenstein and our understanding of Frankenstein can speak to. Uh, you know, at the forefront of those is you know easily issues of synthetic biology where folks like Craig Venter are in the self-conscious business of creating new organisms right. um, as well as the progress that we've made that seems to be accelerating in recent years around artificial intelligence and mm -hmm. robotics. Yes. So it's, it's this idea of creation we are the creators we're creating things mm -hmm. which I'm guessing could turn out to be monsters but we have a choice in what pathway we take. Right. Yeah. And, and the point is to help, um, is, is to use Frankenstein as a vehicle for engaging in discussions um, that will help scientists and engineers, as well as the rest of us, understand what responsibilities reside in us as creators mm -hmm. and in the community that exists around creators. Right. Okay, so what are some of the things that you've done? So, um, well, I, meant, you know, I mentioned that, that um, film series, the um, perhaps the basic three pillars of the current large-scale Frankenstein Bicentennial project are these. One, we have um, a fairly large grant from the U.S. National Science Foundation to do something like what we're calling a, a transmedia museum okay. around Frankenstein. And the original idea, harking back to my, you know, 2012 really, was could we do a large-scale physical traveling exhibition okay. themed around Frankenstein and the creation of life that major science museums would be involved in the creation and the propagation of. Mm -hmm. um, and one of our science potential science museum partners did some focus groups and topic testing and for some reason they came back with an answer that wasn't quite um, worth the investment that they thought they would need to make in this, and that confuses us to this day. But, okay. um, but then, you know, what were we to do? So, okay, you can't do something physically. Let's do it virtually. Okay. And so, again, with Ed Finn, we conceived of the idea of a virtual museum that citizens themselves would curate around topics related to Frankenstein and the creation of life. Okay. And we would be exploring, probing a hypothesis that 
if you gave citizens something more active to do, to make, to engage with fellow citizens in, that they would be able to better learn about not just the, the underlying science and technology issues that might be relevant, uh, like synthetic biology and AI, but they might actually be able to learn about the broader societal, ethical, and legal issues. Right. So, so this is citizens not as pitchfork holders, but citizens as co-creators. That's exactly right. right. And you know, the vision at that point was for them to bring images that they would find and, and collect and curate and create cases and rooms and wings of a, of a Frankenstein museum. That's morphed given the, the goals of the project and the National Science Foundation to try to assure that we give people a more vibrant kind of experience than curating might be. Right. Uh, and yeah. so that's what the, the transmedia element is meant to represent. And so we're in the process of trying to articulate what um, a common storyline mm -hmm. would be for people to engage in this online environment, for people to engage in making activities where we would give them instructions for you know, making their own creatures and things mm -hmm. like that at home, um, as well as uh, traditional things that are done in museum settings like tabletops and manipulables sure. right, for right. kids to make. So so is this available online now or is this still a work in progress? This is still a work in progress. The um, Some of the tabletop manipulables, particularly the Scribblebot, and right. I did not bring the Scribblebot to show you guys. Yes, for everybody um, who's listening, please know that there's a small museum on my desk right now. Uh, next we're having, actually, we're having a very serious conversation with a really cutesy Frankenstein's monster sitting watching us on the table. And he's he's plush, and he's got the bolts in his neck, like the universal creature. Um, but he has a goofy smile as well. But he has a goofy yeah. smile. And if just as a digression, and I'll get to the other two major things that we're working on. As a digression, what's really interesting, and in some sense, Young Frankenstein is the is an inflection point here, mm -hmm. that sympathy for the creature increases over time. Mm -hmm. That the doctor. Or, and he's never actually referred to the doctor, that Victor is, in most 19th and early 20th century representations, the protagonist and the creature is the antagonist. Mm -hmm. um, as we move forward through the 20th century, people are paying more and more attention to the experience of the creature, taking the perspective of the creature, mm -hmm. so that in more recent representations, you know, you've got this cute, half-smiling plush mm -hmm. Frankenstein, but you've got heroic creatures and, and evil victors as mm -hmm. well. Sure. Um, and so that's, that's something that's interesting to watch largely through uh, film and, and representation of comics and graphic novels and so forth. Um, the other two major projects that we have um, represented here in the little museum is a new edition of Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. And I've edited this with Ed Finn and with ASU's Jason Robert. Jason is the director of the Lincoln Center for, Appl for Applied Ethics, mm -hmm. and he's a philosopher and bioethicist. And the target audience for this edition is students studying science, technology, engineering, mm -hmm. medicine, mathematics, uh, STEM students, high school to grad school. Mm -hmm. And oddly enough, despite the fact that Frankenstein is very widely taught, in colleges and universities and even in high schools, mm -hmm. both as literature and as supplements to science and engineering courses, 
uh, there's never been, so far as we can tell, an edition that's specifically focused on that audience right. of high school to grad school STEM students. So, so when you say annotated, um, in fact, the copy's in front yeah. of me here, but, but you're actually creating a commentary as you go through the piece. So, yeah, so to the original novel, we've added, oh, about 130 notes mm-hmm. to okay. the text, which largely address the historical, social, ethical context okay. of Frankenstein to draw the interest of young scientists and engineers, and as the title of the book says, of, of makers of all kinds, right. to the issues that engage them in uh, their daily work as creators, but that they might not necessarily see in this 200-year-old text. Right. Um, you know, So what was going on that's relevant to their scientific and, and engineering creativity currently, well, yes, you've got this you know, somewhat distant uh, historical context of science where in Mary's day, um, electricity is a fairly new phenomenon. Right. You've got public demonstrations of science by the heirs of Galvani um, who are doing things like using new electrical apparatus to shock the dead bodies of animals and even human beings in public demonstrations Um, and you know bringing the students into that context but bring them into the context of the novel where Mary is an author Mm -hmm. is 18 years old when she starts writing this Victor is a college student Mm -hmm. so together with Mary and Victor, these folks are at the cusp of their creative endeavors and we want to bring them in. So this is a a story for millennials and whatever the generation is coming up behind them. Yeah, Yeah. no, it it, it really is. And there's, you know, and Mary is just such a a fascinating figure here in that, you know, like I said, she's 18 years old when she first imagines the story of Frankenstein. She's on this European jaunt with Percy. She's not yet married to Percy Shelley. Percy is still married to somebody else. Um, uh, Mary has been pregnant by Percy. Um, when they're uh, in Geneva, they're hanging out with Lord Byron and Lord Byron's doctor and uh, Mary's stepsister who wants to sleep with Byron, but then everybody in Europe apparently did. Yeah, um, is he with the, with the syphilis, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and the five of them are doing laudanum, which is uh, the opiate of the times. Mm-hmm. And if ASU were to get their hands on Mary, I mean, there would be an intervention. Right. She would be what we call an at-risk freshman. Right. And she would be targeted by intervention by our counseling services. Um, and so communicating this sort of edginess to, mm-hmm. to Mary and what she was doing uh, is part of this. And that edginess, I think, flows through the nature of the novel, where in her context she's dealing with issues, for example, of slavery at a time when slavery was not yet uh, outlawed in the United Kingdom, where it had just been outlawed and then reintroduced on the continent, where Mm -hmm. North American states were just beginning to manumit slaves, and of course the Civil War was still in our future. And so she's writing a novel about the inversion of the Mm -hmm. master-slave relationship, which gets the novel banned in South Africa in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are things that that relationship between um, the 
that power relationship between the people that we presume to hold power uh -huh. and those things over which they hold power is something that we'd really like our, our readers to, to think about. So, so this does beg a really interesting question, which you or others may have already addressed, um, which is, if Mary Shelley was writing this now, what would this novel look like? Yeah. And, and when I was thinking about this, the immediate thought was, of course, we'd focus on the technology. But actually, from what you're saying, you would expect a novel that really grapples with very tough social issues. Mm -hmm. No, and exactly. And, and so Mary is often pointed to as um, at least one of the parents, if not the parent, of science fiction in the English language. Mm -hmm. Some people don't agree with that. I'm not one of them. Um, because what science and technology there is in the novel is largely abstracted. Right. That this moment of creation of the creature, yeah. there's none mm -hmm. of the description of the lab apparatus, she just uh -huh. glosses over uh -huh. that kind of business. And the perspective that I take is that that's, you know, I, that, that's misunderstanding um, in a way what science fiction is and what the context of the time was yeah. as well. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I definitely agree with you that um, a contemporary version of this might very well abstract from the S&T right. mm -hmm. as well, but if you look back again to the time in which Mary was writing, this was a time still when the word scientist itself mm -hmm. had not yet yeah. been invented. Yeah. Right, yes. And it is the case that Mary was as educated a layperson in the S&T of her day, as was Percy, mm -hmm. as anyone that we would want to see mm -hmm. in as a scientific citizen today. Right. But she understood that science was a character in the workings of society, mm -hmm. right? And in the same way that it strikes me as, um, you know, I know the creators of an HBO show called High Maintenance very well, because um, I am related to them, and they this their show is about weed on its surface, but it's not really about weed. Weed is a character in the show that really explores people and right. their social interactions. So it yeah. strikes me that science is the same in Frankenstein. I think that's very right, and, and Mary's also dealing with a couple of other powerful actors that are related, closely related to science and technology in her immediate past and, and present. One is political revolution, mm -hmm. and so some of the dates in the book correspond with important dates in the French Revolution. Uh -huh. She's not writing a piece of future fiction, she's actually writing a piece of historical yeah. fiction right. from her own perspective, right. that the action of the novel takes place prior. Um, and she's writing contemporaneously from the perspective as one in the romantic circle, but not as fully as Percy is, about the Industrial Revolution right. sure. and yes. the changes that, being, that are being wrought across society. Yep. And, you know, I think, again, to go to the contemporary situation, we talk about uh, this suite of emerging technologies, nanotechnology, synthetic mm -hmm. biology, artificial intelligence and mm -hmm. robotics, neuroscience and neurotechnology, as... Uh, potentially revolutionary in the way that mm -hmm. steam and electricity were in Mary's day and for the several decades that followed and you know I don't you know I, I don't want to prejudge those particular technologies and Andrew knows my deep history and <laughs> working around them um, but if it's the case and it, I, it's perfectly plausible mm -hmm. um, that that's the case then we need to consider those technologies in as broad a fashion as Mary did because they will have an influence not just on the material 
culture mm-hmm. and the infrastructure that we inhabit, right. but on every little bit of things that we do. Right, right. I, so actually, it, it fascinates me as well from that perspective that, as you said, you go back 200 years to when Mary Shelley was writing this, and she has a very integrated approach to thinking about science and technology within this broader social context. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, a um, hundred or so years from then, we had this divergence with science seem, seeming to be separate from the rest of society. Yeah. Um, and I'm not actually quite sure whether we're coming back to convergence again. Um, a lot of us are desperately trying to make <laughs> that happen, but you see little bits of sort of splinters going off with sort of science seeming to be a, an entity on its own. Well, I, is it, I wonder if we should be understanding some kind of separation between science and technology at this point. Uh, we, we, we should, because actually they're, they're not the same and we conflate them to our... Well, uh, I'm, I'm a fan of technoscience, actually. <laughs> right. um, and, that, and that's this a bit is, of a cop-out, just merging the two together. No, but, but, but yes. this, this is yes. actually something that, that's an issue in Frankenstein right. as well, um, because there's an emerging vision of science as something that intervenes in the world, right. mm-hmm. contrasted against a more traditional view of natural history and philosophy that stands apart and observes the world. world. Yes, uh-huh. yes. And it's, you know, it, it, it seems perfectly clear that the stuff that we support, we meaning contemporary Western society at large, mm-hmm. um, both in the private sector and the public sector, is the interventionist stuff, mm-hmm. is the stuff that's meant to do work in the world. We, and what yeah. that work in the world is differs, yes. but there's no question that it's supported in large part, if not wholly, because it's technoscience and not because it's natural history and natural, so, natural so, philosophy. So, so actually, I, I agree with that. And uh, So you've seen this, this trajectory where uh, even a little over 100 years ago, the wasn't this distinction that, that was made. Mm-hmm. Apart from you had the gentleman scientists who studied things but didn't do anything useful, and then you had the more applied people who were largely shunned by the science community. Right, right. But now everything is, is merged together, apart from the fact that if you look socially at this, you have this science identity um, of a community that sort of believes in the scientific principle and mm-hmm. finds it very hard to understand how they're part of this larger sort of um, science, technology, engineering um, sort of culture. Mm-hmm. And so that's a really weird divergence to me. But I think I, I agree with you that a lot of the stuff we do that we call science is really technology, engineering, science, applied science, all wrapped up together. Well, it just strikes me that contempt in contemporary society, there is a strong engagement with technology, right? Whereas there isn't that same strong engagement in science. Science is very othered, whereas technology is very much part of the way that regular folk are. Right, although in reality they're all sort of merged together. You can't yeah. pull apart the science from the technology, even though we like to think that we can and we talk as if we can. Right. And so that actually gives me an opportunity to talk about this third major right. of, of um, work that we're doing, and that's the idea of how is it that um, our visions of science and technology, or technoscience, or whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. how is it that those visions get popular engagement? How is it that the rest of us can think about co-producing uh, or co-creating what it is that we get mm-hmm. out of science and technology? And how is it that we communicate 
um, the the nuances of that and not just the fact that mm-hmm. you know all things are made of molecules um, to a broader public and so here at ASU we've got this weird sort of festival that we call Emerge. I'm so glad that you said that because somebody just asked Andrew and me the other day what Emerge is and we were like, well, it's sort of this weird festival thing. So how delightful. <laughs> no, okay. that, that's really exactly <laughs> what it was. And it, it started about five years ago in part in the context of that Center for Nanotechnology and Society that I was running. Um, and it was, it sort of has multiple parents, whereas poor uh the, the poor, poor creature really doesn't have any. Um, Emerge has a couple of parents. One was Joel Garrow in the law school, mm-hmm. um, and Joel is a noted author and futurist. Uh, another, Cynthia Celine, who is here in the School for the Future of Innovation Society, um, and also, to a certain extent, the folks over at CSI, mm-hmm. Ed Finn and, and colleagues. But back then in 2012, it was um, the then head of arts, media, and engineering, uh, Thanasis Rakakis. Right, and CSI, just to make sure we're all on the same page, is not Crime Scene Investigations, it is a Center for Science and the Imagination. Right. And so they put together an idea about this sort of futures festival where people would explore different ways of thinking about the future that were not in the mostly scientific domain of prediction or probability, but were more in the creative um, and artistic domain. Mm -hmm. And so we worked with things like design fiction and science fiction where you would write or draw or build things that represented plausible futures, and then you'd have conversations and write narratives around them. Or where the the particular in that very first one, the one that strikes me in, in retrospect was that um, uh, there was a large scale performance art slash archaeology activity where the group looked back on key moments in archaeological history where civilizations were in the decline and found wink wink that a particular symbol was associated with all those declines. And then when they presented this, they asked people to go outside, and lo and behold, the A on A mountain had been altered oh. <laughs> uh, to demonstrate this symbol. It was really quite a, a wonderful uh, you know, artistic intervention, mm-hmm. artistic okay. techno-science, if you will. Um, and where Emerge is now is that we're calling it a, a festival of futures. Mm-hmm. And its focal point is collaborations among artists, scientists, engineers, social scientists, and humanists, basically anybody who wants to come to the table and do weird things. But the point is to be able to use these collaborations to think toward and over the horizon. Mm -hmm. And the traditional way, now traditional way you put art and science together, the standard way Mm -hmm. at the moment that you often put art and science together Mm -hmm. is that you have artists who are working in scientific materials, mm-hmm. bioart, right, right? And that's a way, in essence, to put it crudely, and it, it's not all the cases, but crudely that instrumentalizes science for the purposes of the artist. Yeah. 
Um, on the other hand, you have the instrumentalization of art and aesthetics by scientists and engineers mm -hmm. to show people that what they're doing is pretty too. Right. Mm -hmm. Both of things are both of those things are valuable. Both of them have a place. Both of them can be transgressive appropriately. Both of them can draw additional people into the enterprise. What we're really interested in is using the multidisciplinary talents in those collaborations to help people think about futures. Right. And that's sort of a unique contribution that ASU and Emerge is trying to make to this art science collaborative space. Okay. So, and this so is our, our theme this right. year is Frankenstein. We'll be with Night of the Open Door uh, on uh, Saturday, the 25th of February mm -hmm. in the U Club here on campus. And now, because we are delighted that we have people listening to this podcast literally around the world, I think we've hit every continent except maybe for Antarctica. We do have international flights into Phoenix. There are international flights in Phoenix. The, the, the costs are quite high, um, you know, on a few days' notice, but I'm imagining that we are going to be creating our future past and capturing this in some kind of videographic way. Yeah, and so... This year, we're making a special effort to, to curate Emerge okay. in uh, more concrete uh, and accessible ways. In previous years, we've had an exhibit at ASU's Art Museum mm -hmm. of objects from the future uh -huh. that people created with 3D printers sure. in their Emerge experience. Um, and so we'll be working with the ASU Art Museum, we'll be working with some digital curation the catalog of uh, short films and clips that we'll be showing in Emerge will be there. Um, the, this will link up with the Transmedia Museum effort because some of the tabletop stuff like Scribblebot will be on display for kids to play with. And uh, uh, emerge.asu.edu will have uh, all the activities that we're engaged in. And then whatever uh, curation post-talk that there is, I imagine. Yep. Okay, super. And we'll make sure that's in the show notes. And this episode is going to go up as I look at my whiteboard uh, on the 20th. Uh, is that right? So Monday and then Emerge is... The 25th. The 25th, 25th. yes. Mm -hmm. So we'll have links to all of that information and people who can come and be part of Emerge can do that. And then... Uh, be part virtually if they'd like to as well. That's great. I mean, Emerge is going to be wild. There's um, activities and, and exhibitions and uh, you know festival elements that run from the microscopic to the sky. Super. So it should be really fun. Are you going to have a Frankenstein creature? You know, I'm trying to remember whether we actually got. Um, there's a, a colleague in. Um, in the School of Design and the Arts who has mm -hmm. appeared as the creature previously when we had a, a booth at Homecoming. He was there. We've got a wonderful uh, shot with him and, and President Crow, and uh, you know, he's on stilts. He's eight and a half feet tall. I'm it's not sure whether he's going to be there for this. It is a family event. <laughs> Homecoming <laughs> was a family <laughs> event as right. well, yeah. um, but I'm not sure whether we managed to, uh, to get him into this or not. All right. Well, we'll see. We'll have, we can report back in afterwards. Dave, thank you for talking to us today. Thank you. Lots of fun. Thank Thanks. you. For more where that came from, including our undergraduate and graduate programs, check out the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at sfis.asu.edu. Future Out Loud is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation in Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at Arizona State University. 
Mark Van Hare created our music. Ana Lopez is our production assistant. Please subscribe to Future Out Loud on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please tell your friends and let us know what you think on Facebook and Twitter.